Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Before I start, I've published a guide to help you stand out uh, as a marketer, or even if you're learning marketing and not necessarily are a marketer right now. It's nine bullshit-free lessons from world-class tech marketers, including Seth Godin, Ram Fishkin, David Darmanin. So you can grab it on everyonehatesmarketers.com. Right. In this episode, you're going to learn how to convince people to buy without being pushy or salesy using a methodology developed by Sean D'Souza called the Brain Audit. So Sean is the author of the book, The Brain Audit, and the owner of Psychotactics. Its website is psychotactics.com. He's a cartoonist and a marketer, which is quite unusual, and he has more than 15 years' experience in the field. Interestingly, he still finds the time to spend three months vacation every year, uh, three months nonstop every year uh, for the last few years, which is a, a quite an interesting aspect of his professional career and his life in general. Right, so in this episode, you're going to learn how to truly convince your potential customers to buy without being pushy, without selling your soul to the devil. It's a step-by-step process, as usual, in this podcast, so you're going to be able to apply this process and this methodology in your daily work. It works for your landing pages, it works in your marketing in general, it works for your business, if it's a brick-and-mortar business, if it's a new website, if it's a new site project. This process really works for any type because it uses some first principle thinking instead of just relying on best practices that only work for the next six months and then become obsolete. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Sean, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I read your book, The Brain Audit, a few months ago now, and it really, really showed me how... I think a good business book should be written. So you really took a lot of care into writing the minimum amount of words necessary to convey your ideas. And, and, and your, your book is also very, uh, very tactical uh, and very detailed and precise. So I wanted to thank you for that, for this book, because it really made me a better marketer. So the first question I, w- I have for you is what do an airport and our brain have in common? Well, the thing is that. The book, The Brain Audit, is about, it's built around an analogy. And the analogy is that imagine you've got seven red bags and you put them on a flight and then you get off at your airport. And at that point in time, you're waiting for your red bags. You're waiting at the conveyor belt or the carousel. And one red bag shows up and you pick it up. The second red bag shows up. You pick that one up. The third one shows up. You pick that up. Then you get an orange bag, a green bag, a purple bag. Then the fourth bag shows up, the fifth and the sixth. The question is, when do you leave the airport? And people don't leave the airport until they've got all their bags. And that's exactly what happens in the brain of the customer. If you don't remove even a single bag of their brain, that one bag that is going missing, um, they hesitate. And that's really what the airport analogy is all about. It's about hesitation. It's why does the customer almost come to the brink of buying something from you and then 
decide, no, no, wait, let me think about it. Let me speak to someone else. Let me do some research. And that's that's approximately what the brain audit is about. That's the analogy that it's about. And it's a great analogy. I think it's it's good to 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 think this way. Uh, I think it's easier for people to to comprehend some some kind of tough topic to to understand. Uh, and I think that's also what I like about your approach is that it's it seems very simple, but I think you managed to simplify it so much because you understood the problem so well. And that's kind of difficult to do when you struggle with understanding a certain certain concept. It's almost impossible to simplify it for everybody to understand. And you've done that very well. So today, what I like to do for this episode is really trying to take an example of a business or a product that we could sell together and use your brain audit methodology to to market it and 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 to convince people to buy this particular thing. So. I didn't, we didn't prepare that. I didn't talk to you about it before, so we can do it on the fly. Um, because, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, because That's I, yeah. because I, because I, as you notice, I'm French. I like to use a French thing and we can come up with it right now. So what type of product we like to sell related to France? Oh, I don't know. You're the one with the podcast. You decide the product. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to go for a bakery. That specialize okay. in selling croissant. Okay. So okay. That, that's that's going to cool. be the product, right? Okay, that's good enough. Yeah. Okay. So, of what's your first question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but before before we go into the detail of this particular business, I just wanted to talk to you, uh, talk a bit about you in particular. So, as I as I mentioned, you're you're the author of the book, The Brain Audit, and. 15 years ago, or even a bit more, you joined an advertising agency and you started to read 100 books a year. You are also known to uh, to spend three months of vacation every year and you wake up at 4 a.m. every morning. And I know a lot of people ask you about this, um, but that's quite interesting. And like me, you come from a family of teachers, uh, which also is interesting. So is there any event, a particular event in your life that made you who you are today? I believe I'm not a firm believer in inborn talent. So a lot of people believe that they are born with specific skills. And what I found is that I had good teachers along the way. I just can't remember who taught me what. And so then I became what most people call talented. So to answer your question, a lot of people have contributed. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... A lot of people have contributed over the years. And so as a result, now today, you know, I can write and draw and as you can say, simplify things and dance and cook and do all that stuff. So um, a lot of people along the way have contributed along the way. And I think that makes me who I am. However, I think the biggest thing that was to my benefit was the fact that my parents gave me enormous responsibility. And I didn't realize it until I grew up. They made me do hundreds of things before I was 10. Um, that like what? just made, oh, I, I was in charge, for instance, just like in France, you know, you don't buy bread that's necessarily in the bakery. You go and buy fresh bread for breakfast and then probably fresh bread for dinner. Um, well, that's the way I grew up in India. So I was in charge of bread since I was very little and there was no question about the bakery being closed. I just had to go and buy bread from another bakery. Um, 
I was in charge of um, uh, taking my sister to school before I was 10 years old. Um, it's not like in other countries where we just get on a bus. Uh, in India, the bus, it's like uh, one of those crazy sales that you see where everyone tries to rush into the store at the same time. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was 10, uh, my sister was just three and I would take her to school. Um, there were lots of little things like that. I had lots of duties around the house. Um just enormous number of things that I didn't know I was doing and it made me succeed many times but fail more than succeed. And to this day, that's what I consider to be my greatest asset. The fact that failure is greater than success and that's true for everybody but most people don't recognize it. So out of say five or six or ten things that I do in a day, probably one or two will be to the standard that I would like. And about eight of about four or five of them will be like average and two or three will be just hopeless. So that's the way I look at things. And it was because of the way I I was brought up. I was brought up um, just to keep going and do stuff. And so I don't see any thing like other people do, which is, you know, what is success and what is this? And what is, I just, this is fun. Let's keep doing it. Yeah. And, and that's something that it's true. It's kind of difficult to, to take your distance from when, when you're young, when you're a kid and realizing what your parents are doing for you until, uh, 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 until you're a little bit older. My mom would do the same to me. She would give me a lot of stuff to do and put me out of my comfort zone. And that's something that I've been used to for a young age as well. So yeah, that's a good topic to get into. And I guess we can spend the entire episode talking about this, but that's not a topic. But thanks for sharing that. That's kind of interesting insight into your, your personality. So going back to marketing in particular, I'm interested in hearing something from you. I'm not sure I've, I've read anything related to that. So I'm interested in your answer. Do you have any... Is there any so-called marketing best practices or, or, or marketing stuff that boils your blood in general or that you think are just plain wrong? Yes, I do. I, I, I can see that people promise, make promises, but they've made promises for hundreds of years. So it's not something it's in, in English, there is a term called snake oil snake oil seller or something like that, a salesman. And this is what people do is they promise that you will double your income or you will double your customers or to for want of a better thing that you will have a shorter week or lesser hours or you will work to the beach. I don't agree with that. First of all, it's completely boring. When, when all of the people that make those promises, they're working very hard. Uh, most of, I've been in online since almost 2000. That means we've had the website. I've been online before that 1995 almost. So I've seen the people that say that they're not working very hard or doing stuff like that. And all of them are putting in more work than any of you. And that's true for everybody. Like if you look at the top athlete, the number one athlete in the world is putting in more effort than the number two athlete by quite a bit. So they sell these dreams and people buy the dreams and I'm okay with that. But what we did was then we had to look at what is the opposite of the dream and the dream is hard work. And so we sell hard work and 
when people do that, they succeed and they get a skill. So we don't sell the dream. We sell the skill and people achieve their skill. But that's the thing that really gets me upset. The thing that, uh, in a way, it's good that it gets me upset because I'm more focused on being a teacher versus a preacher. Um, but that's something that's, why do you think so many people are doing it then? Why do you think people are overpromising? Because there are people who will buy. It's very simple. So the shortcut of the human brain is how do I use the least amount of resources and get the result that I want? The brain is a very complex object. It requires, it takes up about 20% of the sugars in your body. It's very um, energy consuming. And so one of its primary roles is to keep you alive. And if money or fame or whatever it is keeps you alive and then makes you better than uh, where you are, then that's what you do. Now, the thing is that the people who struggle the most end up buying most of these things. It's just how it is. It's a, it's what you call a scarcity mentality. When you don't have, when, when you know there is a scarcity, supposing you think, you know, tomorrow in France there's going to be uh, I don't know, a, a storm or something, and we're not going to have bread, we're not going to have... It doesn't matter how much you have in the fridge, you go out there and get some more. And so people work on the scarcity mentality and the people who sell this stuff um, at a very... at a, they, they know. They know what they're doing, but after a while they don't... It becomes who they are, so they don't care. The fame and the money is more important to them than the results. So when you... It's very simple to figure out how good or bad a product is. You just have to look at the testimonials. The testimonials tell you everything that you need to know. First of all, you look at the faces of the people on the testimonial and say, well, do these people look like my friends? And usually the ones that are the get rich quick kind of thing, those people don't look like people you go out to lunch with. And the second thing is that the testimonials never say, you know, so the, so the promise is, well, here's what we're going to sell you. We're going to sell you x-ray vision. And then you would say, okay, so the testimonial should say, I got x-ray vision. But it never says that. It says, oh, that was a great program. Oh, that was wonderful. Oh, the teacher was very good. That gives you the clues that you need to figure out that in the end, everyone got taken in by the razzmatazz, but didn't get any skills, which is really sad. But people people come to psychotactics every day. They go, I've spent thousands of dollars on this, one, two, three, and they have a list of people. And I'm going, well, that's good because now you'll be a better customer. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, I like your analogy about and your explanation about the brain and the fact that the brain uses 20% of, of the sugar uh, of the entire body. And, and yeah, it, it's kind of a wired in our DNA, isn't it? We ha like, we, it's wired that if we manage to do something with the lowest effort possible and the great, the greatest gain possible, then it's the right thing to do. However, it doesn't work like this in business. You have to put the work in. Um, so I like that very much. So let's go back it, to, yeah, sorry, yeah. Go on. but you have, you have to put the work in depending on how, what you want to achieve. So for instance, if I wanted to earn $2,000 a month, then 
I would literally have to put in maybe 15 minutes of work in a, in a day or maybe even a week. That's where I am today. But when I started out, it would take me the whole week, including Saturdays and Sundays, which I don't work on anymore. And I would still struggle to earn $2,000 or 2,000 euros a week. So it depends where you are. And then the second thing, it depends on how much fame or how much money you want to earn. So my goal is not fame or money. In fact, what we've done is since 2007, we have just had a benchmark. And that benchmark is to earn thrice as much as we need. So one third of that goes to taxes, which I'm very happy to pay. Um, one third of it goes into savings and investments. And one third of it we spend, we travel, we travel three months a year. Um, so that's my benchmark. It's We don't We've almost had a fixed income since 2007, and we don't need more than that. And that's cool with us. And and so, if you want to, if you want to keep working, then, and the reason why I keep working is not because specifically of the money, but because I want to. I treat my my products and services like versions. So, like Photoshop version one, version two. So I keep improving that, and that all takes time. Yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a good explanation as well. And so when you say we, uh, you're talking about your family, you're talking about your wife, are you working with her or, or, or is it your yes. own business? Yes. My wife and I work together. We've worked together for about 17, 20 years now in this business. But that's a good lesson against those companies that try to grow at any cost, uh, and making profit at any cost. And there's no end to it. It's like, oh, we need to double the profit that we did last year. And I, I appreciate what you're saying, which is like we we earn more than we need. We earn three times more than we need, and and we are happy with that. So, you could have invested into growing, you know, 10x over the next five years, or growing into using, you know, building a software and scaling and whatever. But you're not doing that. You seem to be a very um, calm and composed person who knows who knows what he's doing, and it's great to to talk to somebody like this. Well, if you've got a sofa, I've got a sofa. Your sofa is not actually softer than mine. You may earn 10 times more than me. You might have 10 times the fame of me, but your sofa is not any different. So the only thing that's different is your life. And my life is benchmarked on uh, on coffee, and it is based on um, how, where I can have the coffee, who I can have the coffee with, and can I pay for that trip. So let's say you said, you know, let's go to Paris and uh, or to, I don't know, to Barcelona. And you'd say, can you have a coffee? Well, technically, yes, I have the time for a coffee. I can get on a flight, get on to business class, sleep there, wake up in the morning, have the coffee. And then if I wanted, I could come back. Not many people can do that. Not even the really rich and famous people because they don't have the time. They might have the money. They might have the resources. I pride myself on having time, money, and saying no to people that I don't want to meet. Yeah, that's a good life lesson. Absolutely. Um, right. Let's talk about the marketing side of things a little bit more. So we started to talk about it at the start of the episode where we said, I told you, we're going to pick a business and just try to use that as an example for your methodology. Uh, now, I don't know how far we're going to go because the brain audit is, is very complete and there's a few steps, but we'll, we'll, we'll give it a try. So let's say we are a bakery selling croissants. So we only do that. And let's say to add a bit of difficulties, we're not going to be based in France because it will be too easy. Let's say we are based in, 
in the US. Let's say we are based in, in New York, per se, right? So the first step of your methodology of the brain audit is to identify the problem, right? So how would you go about... No, the, f- no. First, the first step is to find the target profile. So the target, prof- the target profile. So how do we find the target profile? Most people know the concept target audience. And an audience is a group of people. So a group of teachers, a group of dancers, in this case, a group of people who like croissant, okay? Um, or who like bread, for that matter. Um, but then we narrow it down and we say, now we're going to speak to one person. And now let's say that person is you. Okay. So it's very important that the person is not imaginary. It's an, you, you don't want to create a person and you don't want to create an audience. You want to find a person like I'm doing right now, speaking to you. So my question to you is, well, what, when, when you look at, you know, this favorite bread of yours, what kind of problem do you run into? What issues do you run into? You're, you're in the U.S. now. You're used to a certain type of uh, croissant in, the, in, the, in France. What, what is the issue that you have? But I can't find... So I'm based in Ireland, actually, but that's the same answer. I can't find any good croissant. I can't find the croissant that reminds me of, of my hometown. Like, I can't find those fresh ones that are like... That are just warm, not too warm, not too cold. The perfect temperature, the perfect taste... They're not too buttery. They're not like you don't feel heavy in your stomach when once you eat them. And I can't find any in Ireland at all, or in the US. I'm okay, maybe in New York. Let's let's keep it to Ireland. Let's say. Okay, so so what you've done is you've brought up a whole bunch of problems. You don't realize it. You just said you know you can't find something that's not too heavy, not too buttery, not what you remind me of home, not uh, too heavy in the stomach. Well, what we have to do is we have to isolate among all of those four or five things that you brought up, which is the one that bugs you the most? Those four or five things, which one bugs you the most? I would say definitely the, the fact that I can't find any at all. Any good croissant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. So w- when you say you can't find any, but... You can't find the ones that remind you of home. The yes, one that that's, is yeah, that would be the correct answer. I can't find I can't find fresh ones that that stays good. And what do you mean by fresh? Fresh would be they made it literally five minutes ago. Right. Okay. So now we have an issue where, and and this is this is quite critical because what what you have is a croissant that was made five minutes ago because that's the way I grew up as well bread that was made five minutes ago not bread that was sitting on the shelf so that is the that is the problem the problem is that customers are looking specific customers are looking for that thing so it's like you know is is the is the croissant that you're eating six hours old or worse, maybe even a day old. How do you, so that's the, that's the problem. That's the first bag that you, you deal with. So now the customer who's probably not so clear about how the French croissant needs to be eaten in your hometown is suddenly looking at, at six hours being a problem or even and a day old being a really big problem. And the solution is, how to get a croissant that's just been made five minutes old and tastes like it just 
like you know it, it came out from i mean just came out from the bakery obviously we're just speaking this it needs to get some refinement but what we have here is there is a problem the problem that either the customer is aware of or the customer is not aware of now if you have a sandwich board or a board outside and you're walking past and it says fresh croissant you're not going to pay attention but if it says is your croissant six hours old and then the the subheading says well how to get a croissant that's just five minutes old even if you're in a hurry you'll make a note of that right yep so, so yeah, that's because that's, that's your solution yeah. as well so the way you explain it is that you basically frame the problem and then quickly after say that basically you have the solution and the solution is basically the the non-question way of, of explaining the same thing. I don't know if I'm explaining myself clearly. Correct. It's it's the opposite. It's the opposite of the problem. So you can use a question, you can use a statement, doesn't matter how you use it. But the point is that what, what customers pay attention to is not a solution. They pay attention to the problem. So you pay attention not to great weather, but you pay attention to the storm. You You don't pay attention to uh, you know, easy going roads, you pay attention to the, there is some block in the traffic. That's how you, your brain functions. So your brain, so you have to look at what problem the customer is perceiving. And your problem is that the croissant is now five minutes old. And I can completely understand that. Now, you have to understand that the target profile are just a few people. But when I say just a few people, it might be a few thousand or a few million people that all have the exact same problem. And what they want is a croissant that's just five minutes old. So if you were to take this kind of analogy and then go across the globe and ensure that your croissant was just five minutes old, now you'd have people coming in there expecting it to be five minutes old. But the thing is you have a problem, you have a solution, and now you have your target profile. So that is the first section of the brain audit, which creates the attraction. You're in a hurry. You're just reading the newspaper. You're just on a website. And you see this sign. You don't know who this person is. You don't know what this is. But they've got your attention. That's the main factor when you're dealing with a client. You have to get their attention. The one thing that I know worries a lot of marketers when we think about target profile and making sure that you that you target people on, on you know that are very specific, not trying to reach out to everybody, is that they are worried that they're gonna miss out on, on certain people. They so they tend to try to to expand their audience to other groups that might not suffer from the exact same problem. So what would you answer to this worry? So the thing with target profile is to think of it as a dartboard. When now most of us don't, you know, darts are played in different ways. I know that, but think of it as a bullseye. When you look at the bullseye, you can throw that dart specifically at the bullseye, and that's how you know that uh, you've achieved something. But there's the whole dartboard, so why not throw the dart anywhere on the board and try and you know get any part of the board? And what you have to do is you have to exclude everything else. Now, people go, but what if I? What if the audience also wants uh, large croissants? And what if they want this and they want that? Yes, they do. But 
when you look at all the really successful businesses over time, say the most boring, most used analogy now, which is Domino's Pizza uh, in, the, in the US, they didn't promise a great pizza, they didn't promise a vegetarian pizza, spicy pizza, they had all of these options and they could have taken, you know, we'll do all the stuff, but they only said, look, we'll get there in 30 minutes or less, which is not different from this croissant being five minutes old. So that became a billion dollar company on a single promise. And what you're saying or what other people say is, well, let's make all these promises and be like an average company. Sure. If that's what you want to do, go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the perfect answer. The Domino's, Domino's is a great example. There are plenty of others. And it's once you're aware of... Well, yeah, Volvo was the same thing. Volvo could promise a million things. They promised just one thing, which is safety. And then they built their whole company. Volvo was not a safety car company. They decided to be a, a car, a safe car company. In in the brain audit, I give examples of, you know, hotels and say, uh, for instance, the Energizer battery. You know, the, there are so many examples of companies that they weren't that way before. They just said, okay, this is the kind of crazy person we're after. Let's go after this one person. And, um, you know, like the microphone I'm speaking on right now, it costs $700. I have four other microphones. Why would I buy the fifth microphone that costs $700? And the answer is that they specifically targeted people like me who wanted their audio to sound very natural and so all the other microphones were not doing it for me and this one has and it's it's no wonder it's a studio mic it's found in most studios in the world and that's what i'm trying to do as well with the podcast where i i really try to to focus on one particular problem and one particular target audience now it might be refined uh, as we go but i'm pretty happy with it and the fact that i'm able to explain it in one sentence told me that I, I, I thought I had something precise enough that I could start, uh, you know, working on. Yeah, it's eventually what you want is one problem. And now people go, but we solve many problems. So you did that with the croissant. You said you wanted fresh. You said you wanted not so buttery. You said you didn't want it to be heavy. Now, that's where the second part of your message comes in. If you're walking into a store they enter on one premise, which is that five minutes old. That's what they can remember. That's what they're going to tell their friends. That's what they're going to tell everybody else. They're going to remember that because you're saying this over and over again. However, once you enter the store, you can have a leaflet, if it's a physical store or on your website, you can have the other problems that you're solving, which is that it's not too buttery, that it's not uh, heavy in your stomach. No one is saying that you shouldn't have that. You just don't have it at the start. So, you know, it's like you're going for a date. You have 200 shirts in, the, in, in, the, in your closet. Let's say you're that kind of person. Are you going to wear all the 200 shirts? No. <laughs> you wear your best shirt and you go out there. <laughs> right? um, so so that, that's the way to think about it. So we have the target profile. We have the problem. We have the solution. Then what are the next steps? 
So the next four are the risk factors. So the moment someone decides that they want to engage with you, they want to buy from you, they want to deal with you, they actually go one step behind. They hesitate. And so they bring up the objections. The There are four bags after the objections, the risk reversal, the testimonials, and finally the uniqueness. And we'll tackle each one of them one by one. So the next thing, so it depends on, this all depends on whether you're writing a sales page or just, you know, in a, in a, in a bakery, for instance, you're just going to have just the problem solution. And uh, there might be some objections. So the client, what I do is I don't write all this stuff myself. I don't make it up. I just ask the client. So if I said to you that, you know, we're making this promise of five minutes, what are your objections? Do you have any objections? Well, I'd be worried that... If we haven't mentioned the battery, I would be worried that they just, they are quick, but they're not good. Okay. So that's one objection. What else? Um, I would be worried that they'll be sitting on my stomach. They'll be too heavy. Okay. Uh, that's the second objection. Uh, I would be worried they are too expensive then. Okay. That's the third one. <laughs> yes. Go uh, I'll be worried that they'll be lying to me. Okay. About the so promise. yeah, I, I know. I know that because there's a bakery that says it sells the New Zealand's healthiest breads and they don't, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so. we are in the same boat there. We know that. So yeah, that would be my biggest concerns. Are, are, you actu are they actually genuine in their promise as well? Right. So, so what we have is we have to bring out the objections because clients already have the objections. It doesn't matter what you're buying. If it's something um, even slightly that you're interested in, which is why you're buying it, well, you're going to have objections. So just hiding the objections, there's no point in it. So you bring up the objections. Now, in a bakery, you could have a board that brings up this objection and then kills the objections. In a bakery, you could have a leaflet. On a website, you could have these objections brought up and then you destroy these objections by telling them what you do and why this is not going to happen. But you have to bring up the objections because if you don't bring them up, then the client is going to have them anyway. And if they're going to have them anyway, then they're, they're going to hesitate because you haven't reduced their objections. Usually you have about five or six objections, big objections, and then you just have, you know, really, really small objections. But if you bring up those five or six, what you're showing is a fair degree of transparency. And that is what clients appreciate. So, so yeah. yeah. one thing that yeah. I've discussed with, with clients before and, and companies before and people before is that they are worried that if they bring up objections that people haven't thought about before, that they might create anxiety, more anxiety than they should have, right? So let's say we have a client, we have a company that, uh, that I used to work for, that uh, they were worried that if they were mentioning the price or at least saying that they were not expensive or anything like this to answer the biggest objection, which was how much does it cost or I'm worried that it costs too much, they were worried that they would be perceived as a brand that is, you know, based on price and they want to base themselves on value. So what would you say to that in particular? So here's the way when you're dealing with a client, supposing, you know, you're trying to convince a client to do this and the client says, no, 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 you know, we don't want to bring this up. Well, you run the same story around them. Tell them, what did you buy recently? So they say, I bought a computer. And then you go, did, did you just go in the store and buy it? You didn't have any objections. Oh, no, no, I surely had objections. I didn't want this size. I didn't. Okay, so you had objections. 
The only problem is when you're trying to sell your product, you assume that the customer doesn't have objections. That's not possible because you can bring 10 people in a room, give them 10 products, and they'll all have objections to buying. See, the thing is that if I gave you two free tickets to, uh, I don't know, to a movie tonight, would you be happy? Yeah, but what's the catch? Okay, so there, straight away you got the objection, right? So th the second thing is that maybe you're not free tonight. Maybe you have other appointments. So everything already has the objection. And if clients say, well, you know, that bringing this up is not a good idea, you tell them, look, everyone, you whatever you're buying, you already have objections to. When you bring this up, what you're doing is you're telling the client, I understand where you're coming from. I've thought this through. And now I'm giving you the response to it. So on our website, for instance, sometimes we give away like a $2,000 workshop. We just give it away. You think that people go, oh, sure, go for it. Give, give me the, no, they don't. They go, what's the catch? So we write there what the catch is, why are we doing it? And then they sign up anyway. The point is that every product or service is going to have objections. The more expensive it is, the more objections you're going to have or the more worry you're going to have about the risk you're going to take. And if you decide that you're not going to put the objections, then if another competitor answers those objections, well, the business goes to them. I like this approach as well because of the transparency, <clears throat> as you said. You don't have to use empty promises that promise something that is not true. You simply have to answer honestly to the objections that your customers have, and it will be much easier to convince them to buy from you. Yeah. And you're not convincing them. They are going through this routine anyway. It's not like you're convincing them. You're just presenting the bag on that, you know, carousel on the conveyor belt at the right time, because at this point they're feeling that risk. They're going, okay, you have this high-end consulting, but I have this problem. And usually they bring it up, but sometimes customers don't bring it up. So bring it up and, you know, if on a website, there's no way for, for them to bring it up. In a live sales meeting, yes, they may say, you know, oh, you're too cheap. What? Your objection is I'm too cheap? Yes. I have a problem with a company being too cheap because I think maybe they will go out of business tomorrow. I have a great software that I use for email called Spark. It's for the Mac. It's amazing, but I'm really worried about it because they don't charge anything for it. <laughs> yeah, right? it's it's crazy the, the amount of stuff we're thinking about as soon as we voice them out. There's plenty of things, even for the smallest product. Um, so what's the next bag in this conveyor belt? So the next bag is uh, the testimonials. Now, the testimonials are really the flip side of the objections. So we have objections, but uh, most people think of testimonials as just, oh, you had a really great product or you have a really great service or you have a great software, whatever. That's not what a testimonial really should be. A testimonial should be the opposite of the objections. So clients will come up with objections like you're too expensive, you're too cheap, you're, you're too loud, you're too soft, you're, your bread is not buttery enough, it's too And what you've got to do is you've got to get clients to come up with testimonials that mirror those objections. So let's say you said, you know, the I was afraid that the croissant would be too, 
um, but too heavy on my stomach. And then this client say, Lydia, she says, you know, I, I thought that, you know, I eat all these croissants and they all make these big promises. And, but eventually I feel like, you know, a bloated pig. Um, well, um, not this one. I've been eating this for, uh, eight weeks in a row every day on my way to work. And I totally, I feel light and I enjoy my, my, my croissant moment. Now, what you've done is you've taken the the client and you've killed the objection. So on a sales page, usually what happens or in a sales pitch is that you bring up the objection and you kill the objection, but you also want the client testimonials to then do it. And you want it through what I call a reverse testimonial. Now, you don't see this very often because... Uh, most people have testimonials that say, oh, wow, your product was so great, so wonderful. But what we have is the opposite, which is the reverse. You start off with skepticism, which is what most people do. When you go to buy a product, you say, well, in, I thought it was too heavy, but here's what I found. It's a before and after. So the testimonials have to have at least these two factors. Uh, the first thing is that they have to be the opposite of the objection, so you find, um, you take list all the objections, and then you find customers who then answer those objections, who have testimonials for those objections. And when you're getting them to get those uh, testimonials, make sure that they start off with the way they thought before, which was it was too heavy, but then they found it was light. That's how you need to go about it. I think a lot of a lot of people will will find this tactic risky because. They, they are, they are used to seeing exactly as you said, those testimonials that are over the top, that are way too nice for, for what they are. And they are, they feel like they're taking a risk by, by displaying testimonials that are actually mentioning the objection first and foremost. And then, you know, the customer basically debunking each objection. Uh, but we tried that a few times and it's actually working very well. And that's from the idea came from you, from your book. So that was really insightful. Um, so it's, it's there, it's also there in, 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 on Amazon, for instance, you will read the reviews where they say, you know, the pros of the software are, and they write the pros and then you write the cons of the software and you go, okay, this is a good testimonial. And the testimonial says, oh, wow, this was wonderful. I loved it. What you loved, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't help the case at all. Um, so <laughs> we have the objections. We talk to people to understand exactly what key objections they had. And then we, we use those testimonials, those like fair and honest, verifiable, you know, testimonials. What's the next step? So the next one is risk reversal. Now, most people think that money back guarantee is a good risk reversal. And it is, it is one of the risk reversals, but it's not the risk reversal. So for instance, let me give you an example, two examples, one from very early days. So in the early days, what we used to do is we used to send out um, our info information products and they would be with CDs and they would be uh, a, a, like a binder with stuff in it. And it would be all sealed and stuff and sent to clients. And, and when people returned it, we found that they would... Um, they would not open the packet. So they found they were returning the, the the products that we were selling to them and then asking for their money back and not opening the packet. And what we realized was that they were afraid that if they opened the packet and, you know, folded the pages or broke the CDs or scratched the CDs, they would not get their money back. So we created what was like a lawnmower guarantee. 
we what we said was you take the notes, you take your CDs, you take your lawnmower and go over it and then put all the broken bits in a box and send it back to us and you'll get your money back. And we, because that was the risk. The risk wasn't the money back. The risk was that factor, that one thing. So when you go into a cafe and you order coffee, your risk might not be that the coffee is bad. It might be that it's not the right temperature. So with the croissant as well, there will be certain risks and the risk will be that you're using some kind of bread that makes it heavy or, you know, there will be some risk that is completely different from money back. And when people say, well, I offer a money back guarantee, the point is that I don't want my money back. I already had my money before I gave it to you. What will I do by getting it back? What I want is I want you to deliver on your promise. So I want you to understand what the risk is. Now, <clears throat> for instance, we have uh, courses online um, and so our courses are quite expensive. They're like three thousand, three and a half thousand dollars. People sign up in 20 minutes and we don't do any big promotion like most marketers. We send out one email um, in 15, 20 minutes. Every single seat is taken. So. How does that happen? Well, most of the people online, they offer you a money back guarantee, but they don't offer you a skill guarantee. They don't say, they don't, they don't say, you know, you, well, they say, we'll give you a money back, but we won't give you skill. And we say, we will not give you a money back, but we guarantee the skill. So if you join to learn how to write articles, there is no question about, will I be a good article writer? You will put your article out there and you will see how people respond to it. If you're a cartoonist, you walk into a cafe, you start drawing and people go, how many years have you been a professional cartoonist? And you've been drawing for like six months. So we promise the skill and we guarantee the skill and we don't offer money back. So that's the real risk. The real risk is I don't want to do another program where I get more information. I have enough information. Now I've had enough. Now I want the skill. And so that's why we have no problem filling up any of the courses or doing any that kind of stuff, because we guarantee the skill. You never leave without the skill. You walk in for X-ray vision, you get X-ray vision. End of story. Will you, will you say that this risk is, is, is related to the, the key objection or, or, or the, key, the key problem? Like, for example, for the croissant example, um, let's say that outside of... Like the one critical factor outside of the fact it might be too buttery is the temperature of it. If it's too cold, it's disgusting, right? So, for example, a, a guarantee here, a risk, you know, risk aversion here would be if it's too cold, a guarantee to give you another one for free that is at the right temperature this time. Now you're thinking like the brain audit. <laughs> I read it a few times. I'm cheating a little bit, you know. Um, I'm doing my best. Uh, I hope it's good enough. <laughs> Well, that's exactly it. So that's your risk. Your risk, once you've gone past the problem, you know that it's fine. You know, you've gone past the objections. Your risk is, well, now I'm getting very pedantic. I'm getting very fussy about this. And this is my risk. I don't want it. When I when you serve the coffee, I don't want it to be um, at this temperature. You know, I don't want it to be cold. I don't want it to be too hot either. I just want it to be, at you know, I don't know, 12 degrees or 
centigrade or whatever it is, the specific temperature. And you can you can do that risk. I mean, you can manage it. It's you're you're a baker. That's what he's supposed to do. Exactly. Um, so the last bag in this uh, conveyor belt is the the uniqueness. So can you tell me more about this? So the uniqueness is the toughest one. And the thing is that if you remove all the six bags and you just leave the last one, there's a very good chance that you've set up your customer to go to the competition because now he knows everything about croissants. He knows all the objections. He just has to go to the competition and they offer something that's kind of similar. Then he'll go there. Um, when people say, you know, okay, people are going to other pay, people who are cheaper and stuff. It's because you haven't described what makes yourself unique. I just did in the previous one. I said, you know, the difference between our courses and everybody else's courses is that we offer skill. We don't give you more information. You have the skill. <clears throat> and that's what people sign up for. And you ask them, why did you sign up? And they go, because of the skill. So the way to create the uniqueness is can be pretty complex. But the way you want to um, do it is to make a list of all the things that you do. And, you, you know, say as a baker, you with your croissant, you it's this temperature, it's this, it's this, it's this. And then you pick the one thing that you think, well, this to me is the most important thing. And I want to achieve this. I, I say... Now, the risk, this is the problem with the bags a bit because they can be slightly interchangeable. So that temperature thing that it's always going to be 73 degrees could be either a risk factor or it could be a uniqueness factor. Could it be both? How to? It, it could be both. Um, but in order not to confuse your audience, let's assume that the client... So this is what I do. I go to the target profile and I ask them, what do you think is the risk? What do you think is the uniqueness based on what you've just said? So I'm asking you, <laughs> your risk is, is the, what, what do you, what would you consider to be a unique croissant? Well, I think it's the, so the temperature outside of the temperature, I would say is the, the taste, obviously the fact that it tastes good, not too buttery. No, okay, so not too buttery. So that that is the thing. So so you go and and what you've got to do is you've got to position yourself against the enemy, as it were. And you go, everyone makes a great croissant. It's not that we don't just make it, but what they end up doing is putting too much butter. When you taste the croissant, you'll find that it meets all the needs that you have. Plus, it's not too buttery. And that becomes your slogan, not too buttery. Now, here's the point. No one remembers it. You think that everyone will remember your uniqueness? No one will. So that's what Domino's did. 30 minutes or it's free. 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 You have to say it over and over again. I say this on all the courses. I will say, you know, um, we don't give you more information. We give you skill. We don't give you more information. We give you skill. For our membership site at 5000 BC, I say, you know, it's a place where introverts feel safe. Introverts feel safe. Introverts feel safe. After a while, that's the only thing they've heard. And that's why they think of it as unique. Because who else is saying it? Nobody else is saying it. And if someone else copies it, it sounds like, you know, uh, say, uh, I don't know, some other pizza says 30 minutes or it's free. You go, oh, that's Domino's. So that's how it works. 
Sean, you've been uh, you've been great. Thanks for playing along with me in this example that I didn't give you in advance. I just wanted to have a genuine conversation, uh, the two of us. So before I let you go, outside of the brain audits, what are the top three resources you would uh, recommend to digital marketers out there? You mean on psychotactics? But if, or outside? Uh, outside, like any books or podcasts or anything that, that made you a better marketer mm -hmm. or anything you want. I would, I would say, you know, we started out with me reading hundred books a year. I would say you should read fewer. <laughs> I would say that you should read probably one book a month. Um, um, I, I tend to like books by Adam Grant. Um, he writes really well. He goes deep into it. Uh, he has a book called originals. Uh, Tim Harford is another good writer. Um, what I tend to do is I read the book the first time and I also listen to it on audio. So I don't try to remember anything. You know, I know people say, well, I don't remember. Well, I don't remember anything. I just listen to it. I read it and then I go back and then I make notes of what I've read. So I'm almost reading the same book three times or four times now. And I'm reading four or five books at the same time. Um, and that cross pollination happens. So most creativity, and I used to be a cartoonist, I'm still a cartoonist, it comes from two different sources, which then merge to create one new thing, or seemingly new thing. And that's what I would recommend you do, that that you, you go into this kind of scenario where you're reading and you're understanding that instead of trying to double everything and go twice the speed, slow down, and it's a great life to enjoy. Well, that's a perfect way to end this podcast. Once again, Sean, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Yep, thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com, and this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also... Uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again, and au revoir.